Warning, this program typically features respectful, nuanced, and well-informed commentary, strong language, obscure pop culture references, and spurious allegations. We know of new methods of attack. The Trojan horse. The fifth column. 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 So this column, is another installment column, of the fifth column. column Not column. our usual dispatch. No Moynihan, no Welch. Yes, Camille Foster still doing things at Freethink at the moment. This conversation includes two other esteemed gentlemen, both of whom have had a lot of interesting things to say over the course of the last couple of months, while most of us have been isolated in various ways and certainly had the course of our regular lives disrupted and find ourselves surrounded by a lot of questions and a great deal of uncertainty. I've been relying on their perspectives and thought it would be really interesting um, and beneficial both to me personally, but hopefully to you as well, to sit down and talk with both of them for a little while. Connor Friedersdorf is a friend, a former guest on the podcast, also a staff writer at The Atlantic and the founding editor of the Best of Journalism newsletter, which you should subscribe to and pay for. Lots of great insights there. And Balaji Sirivasan, former CTO at Coinbase, former general partner at Andreessen Horowitz. And if you haven't been on planet Neptune, you're almost certainly paying attention to some of the things he's been saying on Twitter. One of the things that I noticed in the last couple of weeks was a hashtag Balaji was right. What he's been right about is being among the very first people that I saw taking the pandemic quite seriously and warning about just how dire a circumstance it might be in a period when a lot of national media coverage, and certainly a number of mainstream policymakers were a lot less inclined to take it very seriously. I think there's something inherently interesting um, about getting a call like that right. And while I'm interested in the specific things about COVID that helped you get there, I'm also interested in having a broader conversation about making decisions in uniquely uncertain circumstances where there's just a lot of disparate knowledge and information. But I was also inspired by something I saw Tyler Cowen write in a column over at Bloomberg a couple of weeks ago, or maybe a week ago, about UFOs of all things, suggesting that it is perhaps appropriate for us to think about some of the people who might be taking some of the reporting about UFOs that's happened recently, at least a bit more seriously. And he used this phrase, flexibility of mind, to describe people like you, Balaji, who have seemingly been taking some of those reports seriously and also happen to be among the small cadre of people who saw these reports early and was appropriately concerned about what was going on. So maybe we start there and you can help me understand what it is about the pandemic that you were able to spot early on? Well, I think that there's at least two large camps in, in the U.S. Roughly, there's like a kind of an East Coast camp of what I call conventional wisdom, what Tyler would call the base traders who essentially say, hey, everything's going to be the same as it was. Hey, stop changing things. Hey, why are you changing things? Change is bad. Uh, you tech bro, X, you invented X for some value of X. Bus, you invented a bus, you know, that kind of thing, right? And, um, you know, so that's like one school of thought, right? And it's it's basically small C conservative in the sense that it prizes the status quo. It thinks change, disruption is bad, all that type of stuff, right? And frankly, it's often 
as Tyler would also say, it's often correct in the same sense that like, you know, one of the best models for predicting the weather is to predict that tomorrow is going to be the same as, you know, yesterday, right? Or today. And uh, that's a pretty good model. You know, it'll default to being mostly correct. But where it breaks down is when change is actually coming. And um, the big thing is that, you know, because the East Coast is fundamentally about really, you can say what it's about, as you can say it's about Wall Street or what have you. But I think at the most fundamental level, the East Coast US is about politics. And that's, you know, the New York Times and it's Washington, D.C. It's also, in a sense, it's Harvard, you know, which is, which is providing the, the input for policymakers and what have you. And in politics, something that is uh, true doesn't really matter. What matters is whether it's popular. And so, you know, if, if something doesn't have a constituency for it, uh, then it doesn't matter, you know, to, to first order. And that's, that's a lens through which these folks, I think, you know, like see everything. Uh, and, you know, I grew up on the East Coast. I, 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 I know some of the mentality. Uh, and, and I understand why, by the way, because there's a large class of truths that are political truths. Political truths are like, you know, where's the border? Or what's the value of a currency? Or who's the president? Those are truths which you can affect by installing software into people's heads, you know, by whether it's media or whether it's a, a policy announcement, you change human behavior, you can change the political truths. There's a totally different school, which is kind of the, the West Coast school. That's about technical truths. You know, um, what is the diameter of this virus in microns, you know, or, um, you know, what's the value of a gravitational constant, right? Like, or the gravitational constant, right? This, this is stuff where it doesn't matter what other people think. It matters what is true, right? And those are technical truths. Now, crucially, both political and technical truths are important, but it's kind of like which one you think about more, you know, or which one you think of as prime and, and what have you. And, um, you know, one of the things about the, the West Coast as well is, uh, you know, innovation is actually rewarded here. And by the way, when I say West Coast and East Coast, these are only very broadly geographical things. You know, there are things which, you know, are, are West Coast state of mind, you know, or East Coast state of mind. You know, you have East Coast people on the West Coast and vice versa. But the, the West Coast state of mind, Silicon Valley state of mind, uh, one person with an idea might be correct and 7 billion people might be wrong or underestimating it or not understanding it. And uh, that, uh, you know, that correct concept, if you can identify it as correct, and not just correct, but something that's true today and will be popular. Okay. So it's not that popularity is not a consideration. It's that it will become accepted as true in some relatively near time frame, right? Um, you know, there's an incentive for, for that. There's an incentive for thinking different, for finding something that is true, even if it's not yet popular or may not be popular for some time. A financial incentive, but then that also leads to sort of a, a, a state of mind where you're looking at the things that are unpopular but true, whereas on the East Coast, it's popular and it doesn't matter whether it's true. Okay, let me pause there. That's, that's I think, a macro uh, framework. In the context of the pandemic, I appreciate the framework you laid out, but I also find myself a bit flummoxed because I consider myself someone who is very open to change. And I'm someone who is generally an advocate for a lot of the innovation that I see happening on the West Coast and coming out of various tech companies that I've, I've seen certain other segments of society be a bit more skeptical of and a little more uncertain about. Um, but at the same time, the particularly dire warnings that I was seeing early on didn't necessarily resonate with me. And my inclination was to 
view it as mm. catastrophism. Mm. And I wonder why there's still a bit of a disconnect. Yeah. So, you know, something um, I think about a lot is in tech, you know, if you're running a company, you have to be both an incredible optimist and an incredible pessimist. You have to be your own biggest booster. You have to be your company's biggest booster because if you don't market yourself, no one else will and, and, and so on and so forth. On their hand, you have to take a gimlet eye to everything you're doing and constantly critique it and dismantle it from first principles because you might be missing something. There's a, you know, there's a new product, a new feature, et cetera, right? Mm-hmm. So, so you have to have both. And then one of the things I think that's very different about the West Coast versus the East Coast is we frequently see institutions die. Either it's a company that dies, you know, like a relatively new one that just ran out of money or died, something that people put a lot of work into, or it's an industry that just got disrupted, right? Mm. And so we're familiar with the idea that, you know, decisions matter, individuals matter, here today, gone tomorrow, there's high volatility. You know, Andy Grove actually wrote one of the classic books on this, Only the Paranoid Survive. I mean, that's a book that every tech CEO like reads typically. And I think that's part of coronavirus. It, it was actually the first thing which I'd ever spotted on the horizon, which had many of the characteristics of like a tech startup almost, uh, you know, in the sense of, or a concept idea that could go vertical, right? I mean, Ebola, other things had these characteristics, but it was something which could go vertical and it was bad if it did. Mm. Whereas something, let's say like Bitcoin or Facebook or, you know, Uber or what have you, like those were things where um, you do your data analysis and you'd see this thing could go vertical. And generally speaking, you know, I think those things have made the world overall a better place. Um, And uh, whereas this was something where if I was right about it, it'd make the world a worse place. And that was an interesting and uncomfortable position to be in, but the same sort of analytical toolbox of trying to diligence a curve and seeing, is this going to break? in month one, month five, you know, year two, et cetera, the same kind of toolbox you use. I was applying to this and trying to break it and I couldn't. And that's, you know, kind of what led me to the only the paranoid survive, you know, Andy Grove sort of thing. And so started tweeting about it. Yeah. Connor, you don't have to wait for me to tag you in. You can jump in at any point. Yeah. You know, I'm I'm thinking about all of this. Um, People that I was following on Twitter earliest who were attuned to this tended to be academics. I think Nicholas Christakis was probably the first one that I saw on my feed who was attuned to this. And, you know, I think you would find in circles that follow viral contagions of various kinds, whether as sociologists or epidemiologists or medical doctors, uh, you know, they were ahead of the curve in thinking about this. Um, I think that the press in general has a couple of biases that played into the way that this story filtered out. And I think one of those biases at the institutional level of a place like the New York Times is a bias that is shared with a lot of politicians, which is uh, we don't want to needlessly panic people. It would be irresponsible to needlessly panic people. Of course, we see the press go wrong in all sorts of directions on all sorts of stories where there's a degree of panic mongering. And and this is where talking about the media uh, without differentiating between what the New York Post puts on its front page and what the news pages of the New York Times look like and what opinion people at MSNBC and Fox News do 
Um, you know, you need to differentiate between these things to have a kind of coherent picture. Uh, but I, I do think among people in the media who weren't particularly specialists on the infectious disease beat, there is some sense that, well, we've seen things like SARS before, mm-hmm. and there was a lot of panic about SARS, the swine flu, H1N1, and we don't want to have too much panic. We don't want to scare people needlessly. And so we're going to look to experts like the World Health Organization and kind of see what they're saying and use that as the basis for the overall tenor of coverage we're going to have. I think that that's uh, the way that a lot of non-specialist writers and editors in the media work. And, um, you know, I felt like I was ahead of the public curve almost entirely due to following people that I trusted on Twitter and seeing the way that they were reacting to this. And so I was in a position in February where I called my parents because I followed people on Twitter that were treating this first as a potential supply chain disruption thing mm-hmm. and and saying, oh, look at all of the medicines that are produced in China. And so my first interaction with this was to pass along that information to my parents because I have three grandparents in their 90s. And I just said, hey, you might want to order prescriptions. I don't know exactly what they're taking, but you might want to get a little bit of advanced supply because um, this thing in Wuhan could affect that. And it was maybe a week or two after that, that I made a trip to Costco to just kind of bulk up on my emergency food supplies. And I walked in expecting there to be a long line of people and maybe no rice and in fact, uh, no, I got to the checkout and I asked the person if people had been stocking up and it was like, no, are you crazy? What, what are you even talking about? When was that? February? Yeah, sometime in February, like late February. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, at that time I was thinking about, um, I kind of see this thing that's coming and should I be writing about it in the pages of the Atlantic? Um, and I felt like I did not have the expertise or credentials to persuade anyone that they should possibly listen to me on this. Mm. And I think that that was probably correct. I mean, I could barely get my parents who implicitly trust me to to like act on my advice. So the idea that um, as a generalist um, writer, I was going to to move uh, public sentiment, I think was unrealistic. But But I do think that compared to other publications, The Atlantic was a little bit ahead of the curve because oh yeah uh, we had a medical doctor Jim Hamblin who used to, who was hired initially to be our health editor and who's been on staff as a staff writer ever since uh, who brought a level of persuasive expertise to this story that um, you know made one of his early stories I think it was titled like you were likely to get the coronavirus or something yep. like that um, you know it was widely read and I think changed the impression of a lot of people. And I think his article in a small way and bigger events like the NBA canceling its season and Tom Hanks getting this thing, uh, I think of those as very seminal moments that just like brought more people into the curve of taking this seriously because everyone has these different heuristics that they operate with um, and they're really different for different kinds of people in different universes. That piece that James wrote, I just looked it up, February 24th is actually when it was published. And I actually thought it was a little earlier I think I pulled up stakes and left New York around the 14th or the 15th of February. And I'd made plans to leave about a week before that. And when I ultimately decided to do it, it wasn't because I was terribly concerned about the the pandemic itself. I was actually slightly more concerned about 
the institutional response. Like that was the thing that actually was at the forefront of my mind. There was, I allowed for the possibility that things could get sufficiently bad that I would need to be in a place where I could have firearms um, as well as have a lot of food stored away. Right. But at the same time, I was probably a bit more concerned about the over response to something that might not be nearly as severe as people feared. I want to, I want to just add a couple of points. I mean, Connor, you know, the, to me, the biggest issue with, um, I'm just going to use this term and you might wince at it. So by the way, I think the Atlantic actually did do a good job, but, um, the biggest problem I think with the corporate media sort of response on this is they're not incentivized, uh, for truth. They're incentivized for clicks and for subscriptions and so on. And this is a criticism that's been made so many times that it's actually like trite, but it, then it kind of loops around where it gets very fundamental is um, they get paid. There's no, there's no check on them besides other media outlets. And if, you know, a citizen dares to criticize a, a corporate journalist, then, you know, there's a whole gang on Twitter who will yell and scream, right? Oh my God, I can't believe you criticize journalists. Now, um, and yet, without that feedback mechanism, there is no correction of the news because they themselves are not incentivized to correct it. Put another way, um, unless one media outlet breaks ranks and writes something different, as James Hamblin did do, then there's no, there's no other institution or authority that can hold them accountable since they're the truth-forming mechanism of society, right? Um, and that's a really fundamental problem. Uh, and, you know, it gets even more fundamentally problematic when these folks are not just not getting it right, which is excusable, but actively attacking the folks who are. And that's extremely dangerous. Uh, and so that's that's basically something where I, I think there's a major component on this. Um, there's actually a, a, a lady, um, Kelsey Tuok at, at Vox, who wrote that she was, you know, kind of concerned about writing about this. And part of it was, oh, the attacks that would come and, and so on. And, um, you know, I thought it was very honest of her. I thought she's like, you know, one of the, one of the honest, honest folks there. Um, and, and I think, Connor, it's sort of related to what you were saying about how, uh, you know, you didn't think you'd be taken seriously and, and so on on this. Um, that's something where there's, there's a greater degree of pressure to conform in, I would say, the East Coast kind of corporate media, you know, circles uh, than there is in others. There's one other angle on this, by the way, which I think is very important and maybe underappreciated, which is the sort of, for lack of a term, American exceptionalism or Western arrogance or whatever you want to call it. You know, the U.S. just didn't take this seriously. And the reason it didn't take it seriously is the U.S. is number one and it's always been number one and will always be number one no matter what we do and no matter how much we fight and no matter how many wars and how many financial crises and so on. It's like, you know, the, there's an endless amount of ruin in a nation, right? And I don't think that's true, even though, you know, there's a saying there's a great deal of ruin in a nation. That's true. There's not an infinite amount, right? Yeah. And, and so I think that the U.S., for example, only started taking the thing seriously when Italy was melting down. Folks didn't take... China seriously as a peer on the world stage, uh, you know, and I, I don't know where that exactly comes from. It, I think it's something where people may not have traveled there, or maybe they have, and they still think they're third world or something. But it, it, it wasn't real for people until it was, you know, too late. And I think part of this is because 
there have been all these foreign wars and, you know, there's Venezuela and Iraq and, and whatnot on people's television screens. And you can just flip it off and it's just exists in another reality, right? You know, there's, there's, you know, like obviously there's soldiers who, you know, aren't going out there and dealing with this stuff uh, or in, in some cases fighting the wars and what have you. But, uh, but your average citizen can just safely tune it out as something going on over there, except a deadly pandemic doesn't behave like that. I think that that's right. I do think that the experience of SARS and uh, and to a lesser degree MERS, um, people just saw them kind of happen in China, and I think had this notion that um, perhaps because this is such a densely populated place, um, this is different than the West. I'm going to push back on you on there. Here's why: anthrax in 2001. Uh-huh. That was a big thing, like in the U.S. Remember, like the whole anthrax scare after 9/11. Yeah, biodefense was a huge thing that the U.S. was supposed to have set up after that. Mm-hmm. There was all these biodefense preparedness things. There was also the Ebola scare in 2014. George W. Bush actually read John Barry's book, The Great Influenza. This was recently reported, mm-hmm. and you know he um, uh, had basically tried to get pandemic defense in 2005-ish. So, yeah. so there was prep. Uh, it just, it was just words on a page. It, it, it just didn't matter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, yeah. And, you know, Schwarzenegger uh, also did a lot of prep in California. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, but I'm talking about the, just the public response, looking at these stories filtering out of China and thinking, is this going to get to me or not? I just think that the past experience of seeing these infectious diseases and kind of having an awareness that people were going around China, even in Hong Kong and Japan, wearing masks. I think that people coded that as a thing that happens for reasons they didn't understand in perhaps densely populated Eastern Asian countries. I think that that was the kind of mindset, uh, more more so than just a generalized kind of Western exceptionalism. Well, and I understand where you're coming from. Let me let me poke again a little yeah. bit. A very recurring discussion I've had on Twitter is I will point out New Zealand got the virus under control and. Australia did, and South Korea did, and Taiwan did, and you know Singapore is, is getting it under control, even if they don't believe that China has. Yeah, and uh, there's Austria, and there's not not Australia, but Austria in, in Europe, right, and Slovakia, and so on and so forth. And each time they'll say, "Oh, it's an island. Oh, it's a peninsula. Oh, you know, like oh, it's Vietnam, you know, or, or whatever, right?" And and there's always some other excuse. And um, basically, I feel that the country. Had, became fat and happy and content. Uh, that's not even really the right term because it wasn't happy, it, but it, it was, it, it basically became um, disconnected from reality. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one of the, there's another aspect of this also, Connor, which is you mentioned, you know, okay, SARS happened and that was within human experience and therefore it was planned for and whatnot, right? Well, from our vantage point, like kind of the tech person or whatever vantage point, uh, there was a lot of panic being stoked by the New York Times. Mm-hmm. It was just about viral apps rather than deadly viruses. Okay. Um, and it was basically like they were spending all of their energy attacking their direct competitors, technology companies. Um, but there's this amazing article by the CTO of the New York Times that talks about how the New York Times is a technology company that's driving subscriptions and revenue. And it's like, it's it's just it's just all out there, right? Like mm-hmm. there's no there's no like pretense anymore that they're, direct competitors to Facebook and Google for influence and advertisers. And I know that a lot of corporate journalists will resist that frame, yet it's so true that it's hard to. I I am interested in talking more about the incentives of journalists. um, Because I I agree that there are 
some flawed incentives. I don't know that I agree with exactly the way you put it, uh, which is to say, I don't know that there's a distinction between the incentives of corporate journalists and non-corporate journalists, um, insofar as people are motivated by wanting to reach people or get clicks. Uh, the same incentives could apply to someone who sets up uh, a blog on Blogspot, if Blogspot <laughs> even still exists, um, or or you know tweets or writes on Facebook for that matter. Sure, wanting to reach people is and always has been um, an incentive for journalists. Sometimes pernicious, so- sometimes not. I still think that every journalist I know well, which I think is hopefully a little bit better than average quality of journalists. At least I try to pick my company well, but getting something wrong and being corrected is just the worst feeling that any of these people have. Correct. Right. Yeah. So I think that there's a sense in which actually fear of getting something big wrong is bearing us heavily on possibly not getting a story right sometimes. Right. So this is actually the same as academia where a correction or a retraction is like a black mark, mm-hmm. right? You know, it's something which, oh, you're supposed to get it right 100% of the time and so on. There's actually three different models of approximate and iterative truth that are kind of tech West Coast models, right? The first is the model mm-hmm. of GitHub, if you know github.com or, or Git, right? Where um, when you do software development, uh, there's, there's a list of open bugs, open issues on any piece of software, whether it's a Linux kernel or Zoom or... You know, Google search engine, you go, you know, you go to GitHub and, you know, any open source project, you will see the, the more popular the project, the more flaws there are in the project. Those flaws are openly acknowledged and the code is just constantly edited over time. In fact, if there aren't hundreds or thousands of bugs open on a project, well, it's not being actively developed. You have less trust in it than, you know, otherwise, right? So that's, that's a model of kind of iterative truth, yeah. number one. A second model is like the VC model where you don't have to get everything right, but you have to get the big things right. And there's a numerical check on it, which is dollars, right? You know, you are held to account by the market and you you kind of quantify the confidence in your bets. And we actually literally do this with Anderson and other places. We, we put percentages on things, you know, as, as we do bets. Um, the third model is uh, perhaps maybe the most important in the medium to long-term, which I don't think most folks in journalism are thinking about in this way, but uh, Michael Casey and Paul Vigna of the Wall Street Journal wrote a really good book called The Truth Machine, um, which is which explains this concept for a popular audience. And essentially, it is that cryptocurrency and blockchain are a model of adversarial of truth in an adversarial environment, right? Like that is to say that the database of who holds what Bitcoin, that's that's a, a database that holds a hundred billion dollars of value, um, and anybody who could mess with it would because you could give yourself a billion dollars, but no one can, and so thus whether the Democrat or Republican, American or Chinese, you know, like German or French, whatever, everybody has the same truth of entries in the Bitcoin blockchain. And that actually, that model can be extended to other kinds of things. Mm-hmm. So, so there's an alternate model for truth, you know, than, than just get it right and say it's always right. Mm-hmm. And the other thing that, that I think is important is um, because there's such a penalty to being corrected, there's a strong incentive to stonewall and to groupthink because you can only be corrected by another card-carrying journalist. <laughs> That's effectively like it's a cultural centralization around Brooklyn. And this is why... I don't, I don't, think, that that's, I don't think that that's true. Actually. Camille, Camille's laughing though. Camille thinks I've got a point here. 
I, I both agree and disagree okay, with no, you. Shoot. I, Connor, I'm poking, by the way. I'm poking. Yeah, so. please do. <laughs> I, yeah. yeah, I certainly think it's true that there are some some incentives that produce bad outcomes in journalism. And I certainly think that both with journalism and with the hard sciences and in various other places, and I know we've actually talked about this before, Balaji, that there are these priesthoods almost, these various disciplines that people regard as almost mystical in their ability to divine the truth and to deliver knowledge to us in ways that are, if, if not completely mysterious, they're at least inaccessible to us. Right. And in order to play in that space and in order to critique the work that's being done in order to really understand it, you have to be a practitioner. And if you're not, then you are a lay person who is essentially waiting for someone to bring you the truth. And Interestingly, like my own perspective on what is fundamentally wrong with journalism and likely what contributes to journalists and experts missing calls like this um, and depending upon the, the comfort of making decisions and holding opinions that are popular and conventional is that there is, a, a, as, as you mentioned earlier, the public is likely to punish someone who is seen as getting things wrong. And the public actually has, generally speaking, an attitude towards these disciplines and towards the notion of truth that's pretty absolutist. And because that popular presumption exists, not only within the discipline, but outside amongst all of us who depend on these different um, professions, that, it, it seems to me, is a pretty dangerous cycle. And one really does have to not only create a new incentive structure for people who actually do these jobs, but at some point you have to try to persuade people that, no, this is not something that you can't have a perspective on because you're not a scientist. Like science isn't a priestly order. It's a process. And you can be involved in that process if you understand the rules and if you understand the rules, then you can have a general sensibility about, you know, how to engage with the conclusions that it reaches. And you can be involved in the process of starting to ask good questions. You can even learn to ask good questions, which is perhaps the most important thing that anyone can do in a context like this. Let me try and lay out um, a kind of broad framework for how I understand these things and give a couple of examples, because I sometimes... I sometimes hear media criticism, and I'm not saying this about yours, which was very thoughtful and specific, but I sometimes hear a kind of generalized media criticism, um, complaints about the media. Um, and I, I almost think it's as if someone went to a restaurant and got a bad meal or saw someone else get food poisoning. And then they said, my God, the restaurants are terrible. The restaurants are just killing us. They're like, we need to just have a better quality of the restaurants. And I, I think that um, differentiation is really important. There's just such dramatically different moods and incentives that different kinds of press outlets. And as far as I'm concerned, we actually know very little about the quality of these outlets over time. How does the New York Times compare in right. quality to bygone eras of the New York Times, to other newspapers, to newspapers in other countries, let alone comparing across mediums? Uh, but, but I think at least one fundamental problem across all media is that you're almost always having people who are 
mediators of information. They are not experts themselves. Yes. And this is on some level, I guess, unfortunate, but it is also inevitable. There is no way around this. We need mediators of information. There is no other way. I think of different mediators of information operating in different modes, right? Some people are going out and trying to find facts and reporting those facts, right? And that is one way that people get information and understand them. They read um, a story in a newspaper and it has a fact in it and that fact is sourced and they either accept that or not, right? If you think about a different mode, something like, you know, I worked for a few years for Andrew Sullivan and followed the rise of the blogosphere and, and knew the Daily Dish in particular since I worked for him. You might think of that mode as someone who is trying to air a bunch of arguments for people who come to the truth by following this debate, this kind of um, crucible of public discourse in the hopes that the strong arguments will win out. And you get a lot of information and a lot of things make sense to you or don't make sense to you. And you tend to orient yourself around what are strong arguments and what are weak arguments. And over time, you hopefully come closer and closer to the truth. And these things get mixed and muddled up in different mediums, in among different writers. Uh, some writers are really strong at spotting good arguments. They would be really good at passing the LSAT. That would be one skill set of mm -hmm. journalists, right? Some journalists are would be terrible at passing the LSAT. They would fail the LSAT, even though they're excellent writers and even though they're excellent reporters, excellent unearthers of information. And I know no better way to get good information than to be than to have a sophisticated understanding of who you're reading and what their strengths and weaknesses are, and also what their implicit model is for what they're telling you, right? If you read Vox without knowing the biases of Vox, you might be led astray. If you read Vox kind of knowing where they're coming from, um, they are relatively diligent within their project. Uh, if you take away the flaws of their project, they're pretty good at doing what they do within it. So I'll, I'll, I'll conclude by just telling you one story that I wrestled with um, during this pandemic, because I'm in a position where I uh, have a lot of freedom to pitch different stories and follow my interests. And the pandemic isn't nearly the beat that I was on before this is happening, or, or one of the many <laughs> right. beats that this was on. Um, and so for a lot of stories, I feel like this is something that uh, Jim Hamblin, a, a medical doctor, or Ed Young, a science writer, uh, are much better at writing than me, and I'm going to let them do those things. Still, there are some people who tend to follow things and understand the truth through the kinds of arguments that uh, I put out, are there fans of mine that follow me on social media? Or, and so I think, how can I be helpful and get them the information that I need and be a responsible purveyor of information, um, responsible go-between, right? And uh, so one story that came I came across, it was in the LA Times, and it was by this woman who uh, works at the Scripps Institute of Oceanography. And this is an institution that I have... Uh, a, a good amount of respect for as an institution. I years ago wrote a book about the four guys who started SeaWorld and mm. talked to a lot of Scripps people and had reason to just like trust Scripps as an institution. And this particular person had 20 years of experience or something like that that was laid out in the article studying pathogens in, um, in the ocean, right? And I grew up in Southern California. I've had plenty of earaches because I went surfing or boogie boarding after it rained. I know that, um, I know that these things, I know that bacteria can uh, flow into the ocean from source, that, that this is a way that you can get sick. And I read this article and this woman was suggesting 
she said something like, you couldn't pay me a million dollars to go in the ocean right now. In fact, I wouldn't even walk beside the ocean because you see the uh, foam coming up on the shore and that pops and that's enough to disperse viral particles. And we don't know the concentrations of coronavirus that could be at the beach. And she was suggesting that people shouldn't even be walking, you know, within 20 feet or 30 feet of the ocean. Mm-hmm. So I read this. I uh, I certainly think that the national media has an East Coast bias. So I tend to be on the lookout for stories of West Coast relevance and coming from West Coast institutions and that would impact fellow Californians. And, you know, occasionally I'll write something for the LA Times. So I thought, should is this the category of thing that if it were true, I would want to pass along? But also, I don't believe this for a second. And I don't have a good reason for not believing this, you know, just as I'm like going through and reading this article. I just thought that just doesn't sound right to me. Which article was this again about not walking near the sea because of what reason again? Because the coronavirus could be in the ocean and waves Hmm. could wash up onto the shore and spread viral particles in the air as the foam burst. And this could infect a lot of people, right? Hmm. So for a whole bunch of reasons, I thought that just doesn't scan. I'm reading around. I'm paying pretty close attention. I just... I just can't believe that that's right. On the other hand, this person has all of the right credentials. They're from an institution that I ought to find trustworthy, that I do find trustworthy. And, uh, you know, should I, should I invest my scarce time looking into this? Should I retweet this LA Times article right now just in case it's true? Um, I did not do that because my prior was that it was false, that mm-hmm. uh, this person was just wrong no matter what her credentials were. But my point is kind of that, like making that decision about whether to reach Twitter or not, either way has costs. I had really, yep. I had no basis for rejecting this woman's conclusion based on her expertise. Uh, you know, I know nothing in this realm. It just didn't sound right to me. And I did, you know, a couple of days later, I happened to have a phone call with, with uh, Nicholas Christakis uh, for a piece I was writing about whether doctors and nurses should be free to speak out in hospitals. And I kind of ran it by him and I was like, this doesn't sound right to me, but just tell me what you think. And he's like, yeah, it doesn't sound really right to me either. And if you yeah. really wanted to check into it, here's a couple of things that you might look at. But, right. but you know, and, and, you know, ask, so asking informed people, um, they kind of, uh, but I, I say all of this because a lot of the small decisions about where to spend one's time or what to amplify or even what to write, um, turns on a series of judgment calls that it's very hard to make hard and fast rules for. And this is a challenge for every journalistic institution because um, you really have to just hire people um, who have good judgment most of the time. And it's very hard to do quality control at the bottom because, again, there are no hard and fast rules that one can apply. Uh, one can go wrong if the hard and fast rule is here is a list of institutions that we trust. And when they say something and when the people at them have X number of schools and X degrees and X number of studies that they've published before, we just print that. Right. That is not a viable rule. You know, we distinguish technical diligence from social diligence. Huh? Technical diligence is I can get under the hood of this, right? I can look at the carburetor or the spark plugs, you know, the equivalent, you know, whether it's oceanography or virology or computer science or what have you, and I can render an expert opinion on this, or I can get expert enough quickly that, you know, I can, I can do this. Right. Um, And then social diligence is uh, 
this other person who I trust has signed off on it. Yeah. And the thing about, you know, technology is there's enough new things that you can't outsource. You know, social tools is a component here, yeah. you know, for sure, right? Like people will follow Peter Thiel if he invests in something. That's a form of social diligence in the same way that the New York Times publishing on something makes it fair game for people to cite as fact and get behind it and do more stories on it in, in, in media, right? Mm -hmm. Very concrete example of that. There's Vox, uh, you know, ap apologia uh, for... Um, getting the whole coronavirus strong story so grievously wrong. And basically, you know, the, the writer of it admitted like, you know, three fourths of the way down that what convinced him was hearing the New York times say that it was uh, actually a real issue. Right. That was what convinced him. Right. <laughs> now what didn't convince him were like the thousand graphs and charts or right. videos from China or anything like that. It was simply a priest giving a thumbs up. Right. Uh -huh. The second thing is, um, the folks who can sign off on something being capital T true, you know, in tech, we, we talk about this concept of consensus algorithm, right? Or an epistemology algorithm, right? What is your algorithm for determining that this is true? Uh, and, you know, for example, you need that to come to consensus on which transactions have been mined in Bitcoin, you know, like who has what debits and credits. Um, or, uh, you know, if you're talking about a knowledge graph, you know, when you Google and you're like, I don't know, uh, Louis the Fourteenth, born when, right? Yeah, that's that's like okay. What is true about this? What is the true fact that you're trying to pull up? So actually, you think about this a lot in in technology, right? Like what is true and what is false. You write code for for this kind of thing, and um, increasingly, what what the belief here is not among everybody, but but I think it's it's definitely taken a turn after coronavirus, is that. The folks who are supposed to be professionally informing us, um, A, have used most of their ammo over the last six years, not most, but certainly a lot of it, um, at their corporate competitors, tech companies, in the name of some, you know, like abstract good, but actually in pursuit of their own interests, um, demonizing Facebook, demonizing Google, demonizing every tech company, OU tech bro, et cetera. And in fact, talking down to people who had more technical knowledge than they had. Mm -hmm. Right. And, uh, and, and so, you know, the, the recognition is basically that um, that's, there's something fundamentally broken there. And one of the issues, and now to put, you know, like some of the fault on tech side is uh, Twitter and Facebook and Facebook especially has incentivized people to attack Facebook. <laughs> like, like all the, the likes and the, the tweets and so on, like that, the, all those mechanisms have and actually, you know, Facebook saw this at the very, very, very beginning of the newsfeed. The moment they launched the newsfeed, you know what the first story that went viral in the newsfeed? No. Were folks saying the newsfeed sucks? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. So so this is something where <laughs> everybody's conscious, they know that they have created a Frankenstein's monster in a sense, right? Um and uh, now I say in a sense, because I do not think it's all bad. I think there's been a massive democratization of access to information. I think that as terrible as like the InfoWars type nonsense is there, there is out there. I think it's also very important that we have um, good scientists and engineers writing directly on Twitter and, and whatnot, because you can learn a lot from that, right? With a little bit of a filter, you can learn, you can learn a great deal and, yeah. and get ahead of things. So, so I think an important question is what is, you know, it's uh, funny, but what does the future of media look like, right? Yeah. Um, because this is as big a disaster 
for the country as, you know, weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, except it's, you know, the the entire U.S. now that's affected. It's not just a war over there where every Iraqi is affected. It's, you know, a catastrophic you know failure here. And it's not just today, as bad as it is today. It's It actually goes back much farther. You mentioned something I thought was very interesting, which is Vox within their domain was, you know, good, right? Well, not within their domain exactly. With They tend to accurately relay assertions and sometimes arguments and perspectives of the experts that they that they overvalue that they that they, <laughs> that they falsely take as as obviously correct right well not not always falsely but sometimes yeah yeah, yeah no I, I think that they like i think that they overestimate the degree to which like i don't think that they fully understand the uncertainty problem or or dearths of information but i do think that when they tell you that you know, this professor at the Kennedy School of Government um, put together this study that came to these conclusions. They're pretty good at describing. Here's, here's what it here's what it says. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's, I'd say that that's that's about right. So, so that's what I was trying to say. One of the things that we have seen over and over again, I think, I think this is much more tangible to us. Maybe when I say us, I mean like the broader tech community, whatever. Is um, there's there's sort of a a process of monkeys petting their fur and getting to relative consensus in like this East coast community about what is true. And then reality is like often a thousand X off. It's in like, I'll give some examples. Bitcoin is dead. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's up 10,000 X since that article. Right. Well, I'm not, I'll give, I'll give more. The coronavirus <laughs> is being contained a thousand X off, right? A million X. Off, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, Google's toughest searches for a business model, right? Uh, Amazon.bomb. Or another one that just came out, which is amazingly terrible, it'll be looked at as just awful, is the article, oh, VR sucks. And VR is about to like go berserk, right? But this is in the New York Times recently. I agree that there are all kinds of terribly inaccurate stories in the media, right? But it seems as... But, but I'm, not saying, I'm not saying like... If we just take like, like these stories and compare them to like the best minds in tech, it, it I, would be as I'm if... I'm not sure that's what he's, what he's getting at. It, I want to... Can go, I go, offer, go, go, go. Can I yeah. offer something Please. here? Because I think, I think I've actually yeah. fixed... I know how to fix journalism. Okay. Like I have <laughs> go, 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 go. Yeah. <laughs> <All> right. Right. <laughs> the, the capital T truth is the problem. Oftentimes it's completely inaccessible. Like no one really knows and the truth will be revealed eventually. And in the tech industry and for VCs, you invest in the right thing and you will be rewarded mightily for it if you get it right. The difficulty is we are often writing stories and it is necessarily uncertain. And even now, as I follow you on Twitter, like it can be a bit maddening because you will give me several different things and they're all true, but they don't add up to a Connor Friedersdorf opinion piece <laughs> where there's a thesis. Totally, totally. And, I should do and there's a conclusion. Well, no, I think the issue isn't that it's too short. The challenge is that oftentimes all we have are a couple of pieces of you know, capital T true empirical facts. But what we have in addition to that are some really good questions. Yep. Like that's probably what we ought to be prioritizing the questions instead of the presumed answers. And, you know, the issue I've always had with Vox is the notion of explainer journalism. It's kind of patronizing. Not everything about the world can be explained in the sense that this is the capital T truth about it. In many cases, and what I want when I encounter the story about COVID in the ocean is, well, what if you're wrong about that? 
how will you know if you're wrong about that? Like these are the additional kinds of questions that journalists ought to be in the habit of asking and that quite frankly, readers, consumers of media, of, of science journalism, even in a circumstance like this, they ought to be formulating the same kinds of questions. And I think that kind of process, developing that sort of muscle, dutiful, deliberate skepticism, not cynicism, but skepticism, is precisely what's required within the institutions themselves and amongst the public in order for us to get better results out of all of these disciplines. So that's how you fix it. Let me ask you a question. The critiques that both of you have articulated, I absolutely agree with and, and believe that they apply to some journalism. Where I'm a little bit more skeptical is the idea of this divide, even in broad strokes, between a tech mindset and a journalism mindset, partly because um, there are different problems that these two broad categories are are attacking and solving different pursuits that they're in. Uh, but also, it seems like if you just want to restrict yourself to the realm of Silicon Valley, you see a lot of the same kinds of things going wrong, right? You see Theranos happening, you see WeWork happening, you see uh, lots of things that have gone bankrupt, lots of tech products that have rolled out that didn't work, lots of groupthink, lots of failures. Those failures are punished in a different way than they're punished in journalism. How are they punished in journalism? That's the thing is basically like our perception, okay, or say the deep perception uh-huh. is, you know, the New York Times is out there marketing themselves as capital T truth. Literally, that is their marketing campaign, the truth. The truth is hard. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That, the, yeah. All that stuff, right? Exactly. By contrast, VC, uh, like the whole model is based on some percentage of failure. It's it's fundamentally humbler in the sense of it's approximate, right? It is a thesis. It's a bet. It is not a... Uh, papal pronunciation. It's not, you know, from on high. Moreover, taking the examples that you mentioned, um, would we not have been better served had, uh, you know, there been a lot more investigative journalism into the FDA than WeWork? Sure, sure, absolutely. Look, I, I actually think WeWork is, uh, you know, kind of got a raw deal of it. They built a product that people liked, and then they were just taken apart by Galloway for clicks. Um, and, you know, look, did they spend a ton of money? Yes. Did, uh, you know, it, it's basically being killed by Corona. So, uh-huh. you know, it's mm-hmm. one of those things where it's a past. It kind of doesn't matter, right? I feel bad for them. But they built a good product that people like, even if they were spendy in terms of the bottom line. And Galloway actually even mentioned this as a tech entrepreneur. He was like, yeah, it's possible that he could have raised around and then made it work post-IPO. People could have taken that bet. So I wouldn't even consider that like a huge failure. It was like a useful product or what have you, right? Uh, and and so the, the issue is we have been misinformed as a society on what is important. And it's very deep. And it goes back more than a month or two. I'll give a few more examples. Yeah. Going back five, five or six years, right? The FDA blocked uh, the Apple Watch from having more sensors in it, okay? That is to say, diagnostic-grade wearables would be out today. The FDA also attacked mm-hmm. 23andMe for, um, you know, basically doing at-home genomics, right? And uh, especially medical-related things. They kind of forced them to nerf it for a while and include only ancestry-related sequences and other things got pushed through an FDA process. In an alternate world where that had been met with ferocious investigative journalism into the FDA's incentives for blocking this, right? 
which relate among other things to regulatory capture, yes, but also relate to kind of power and ambition at the FDA, right? They're not pure creators doing so. Had that happened, there's an alternate universe where today we would have had uh, millions of watches with diagnostic grade sensors in them, okay, which I know exists, by the <laughs> way. I can I can tell you that, like technically, I give you a bunch of sites, right? Um, and yeah. we would have had many more people who have full genome sequences or at least genotypes, okay. And you could have known the pharmacogenomics or immunogenomics of coronavirus because there's probably some variants yeah. that contribute to some people having more severity versus less, right? And so, yeah. so that's just like one example which I'm very familiar with, where. Uh, you know, in terms of holding the powerful to account and and that second role of journalism, right? Because there's the informing role and there's the policing role, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, yeah. the uh, most people outside of media think that the role is informing, but the highest prizes within media are one for policing, you know, like impact journalism, mm. you know, cynically best viewed as a government truncheon impacting someone's head, right? Like, <laughs> right. you know, like, yeah. Yeah, you know, I, I hate... Hmm. I hate being in the position of defending uh, the media because I'm much more comfortable <laughs> sure, as a media sure, sure. critic, go, go, go. and I especially especially because um, ideologically I share a lot of the same perspectives that um, you know you've heard from Camille and others, sure. and, and you know yep. that you just articulated yourself with regulatory capture. But let me let me articulate my concern for the way that I see media criticism playing out. I'll use the Iraq war as one example, because the Iraq war came about at this time when 9-11 sparked this flowering of blogs on the internet. And you had all of these people who were lawyers and college professors and various professionals, business people. The whole, I, I know you're going to go, you're going to say the war bloggers helped cause the war. It was a bottom up thing. It wasn't a top down thing. Well, no, I was just going to say that the war bloggers oftentimes had incisive critiques about skepticism of the war that was published in the New York Times or that a professor, or they'd say, oh, this doesn't make sense. But they they overreacted to what that meant. The fact that there were some weak arguments in the media, the fact that there were some people who were saying no blood for oil and, oh, this is just about Dick Cheney wanting to enrich his friends and nothing more. The fact that people made bad critiques did not mean that the other side was correct. And did not even mean that there was a different place where one could have been better informed. And so when I look at the New York Times, I see, you know, an institution that is flawed in various ways. I also see an institution that, you know, survey the world's newspapers and other organizations that try to inform the public about what's going on in real time, that try to inform a mass audience, especially about what's going on in real time. And you would have a hard time doing better than the New York Times or NPR or the BBC for all their flaws. And by God, there are many of them. And I wish that their biases were different than they are. But it's really hard to build a better thing, right? We saw what happened when Tucker Carlson said, I'm going to build a better thing. And what happened was the (laughs) Daily Caller, right? And the alternative to the New York Times that a lot of people are using is way worse If you want an educated citizenry and you could have them just read the New York Times or just watch anything broadcast on television, any news broadcast on television, you're way better having people read. We need to improve these institutions. We need to improve the World Health Organization. My God, it's so flawed and corrupt. At the same time, we want to have someone who is a go-between between China and whatever they're doing in their labs and the rest of the world. So we have visibility into them. 
I'm making an argument for conserving the good, useful things that we have and not totally eliminating mm-hmm. these institutions because then all we end up with is people screaming at each other on TV and paying zero penalty for being wrong because they're intentionally trying to be wrong. Like they're intentionally saying things they don't believe. How do we improve on what we have without throwing up our hands in disgust and throwing the baby out? I, 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 I know you have a response, but I, I feel like I, I made some concrete recommendations about how to Go improve ahead. the institution and not destroy it, which is to say that a, a different approach to to the work of journalism, to the process of delivering the, the truth to people and not making it capital T truth, as has been underscored a couple of times, but looking for the questions, engaging with the uncertainty as really the pandemic has forced us to. The, the other day, I, I sat down and I tried to make a list of all the things that we knew about COVID versus all of the things that we don't know about COVID. And very quickly, I found that the list of things that I knew was very, very short. And it was filled with stuff that was anecdotes in some cases, things that were coming from like preprint studies. Um, and there is a lot of uncertainty there. And that's okay. Accepting the uncertainty and finding ways to still derive like useful insights from it is probably the approach that helps to fix the the difficulty that these institutions have, it, that feels like a concrete recommendation to me. Maybe it's not landing in the way that I'd like it to, because nobody else is excited about it. <laughs> me. No, no, no. Yeah, I, I have, first of all, there's a feature set here. Uh, I've just been making a list on, on this because I've been thinking about this yeah. for a while. This is related to what I might do next, in fact. So first, Connor, I want to agree with you that um, it is incumbent upon a critic to build something better. And what that better thing is cannot simply be a reaction against the existing system hmm. um, because that leads you eventually in the direction of this polarized kind of society mm-hmm. where, I mean, because here's, here's the thing, something can be true, you know, even if Donald Trump says it's true, something yeah, can be absolutely. true. Even if the New York Times says it's true, it can be true, right? <laughs> and, sure. and, and something sure. can be false even if both Trump and the Times say it's true, yeah. right? These are obvious points, but a, a critical question to me is, given that, how do you build a better mechanism? Yeah. And uh, there's, here's a few features I have for what I think comes next, okay? So first is uh, open source reproducible journalism, okay? So you're basically, every story is public, it's on... GitHub mm-hmm. or Git, and pull requests that is patches to it are encouraged from the crowd. That itself signals that the thing is provisional. And if people really disagree with what that final interpretation is, they can fork it. And then, you know, it's like Wikipedia. Anybody can kind of fork it, right? Mm-hmm. That's kind of one. Mm-hmm. Uh, number two, a decentralized media community rather than a new media company. I think a big problem is if your friend uh, is grading you on the truth, right? As opposed to the world, mm-hmm. um, you know, then there's an incentive to kind of have this group thinky kind of thing where, okay, if NYT, WSJ and Washington Post all agree on something, we're good. You know, it's kind of, it's like relatively mm-hmm. hard to overturn that. Not impossible, but hard. Um, and uh, so, so I think a decentralized media community 
that has enough financial incentives that individuals can speak up and not all repeat the same thing, right? Substack is starting to get there where, you know, an interesting thing about Substack, it's opposite of, you know, the current environment is something where, let's say, Slate and BuzzFeed and Fox and whatever all basically print the same article, right? It's it's just, you know, it's just with different headlines. And there's some strength in numbers. Oh, they're printing it and they're printing it and they're printing it so I can get behind it. This, by the way, happens in VC as well. Oh, he's in the round. Okay, she's in the round. I'm in the round. You right. know, like it's kind mm-hmm. of, mm-hmm. There, there is, there's actually a lot of similarities, by the way, in some ways between venture capitalism and journalism. Um, but the, uh, the bit that is, that is different here in, in, in this model, at least, is if individuals are making money on Substack, then they're incentivized to differentiate from others. It's social distancing, you know, mm-hmm. right? Because if you're giving exactly the same interpretation as this guy, well, you've got to find, you want to kind of differentiate, you want to have not exactly a hot take, but at least some some difference rather than just reprinting the same story as, as this other guy, right? Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so it's a decentralized media community. Then I think the deepest thing is citizen journalism and decentralized fact-checking. Um, so let me talk about each of those in turn. Citizen journalism means rather than a standing media of like, you know, the concept of like a standing military, right? The yeah. founders, the founding founders were against mm-hmm. that because it was a praetorium class that was separate from the population and had special powers and could abuse them and so on. Now, we may not get rid of a standing military anytime soon, but I think we can get rid of a standing media in the sense of rather than have these arguments over whether the media is the guardian of democracy or the enemy of the people, just make the media the people by essentially having everybody be a, quote, citizen journalist as a duty. And what the reason I say that is um, you can decompose an article, right? And many articles these days are wrappers around tweets. Those primary sources that you mentioned, Camille, are often individuals posting on social media. And that's who mm-hmm. said what, when, and where. And context often gives you why and how, right? And those are like right. nu- nuggets of facts, right? And um, and, and there's individual accountability there and so on and so forth. And then you have this wrapper around it. Uh, there's two things, other kinds of journalism that are like that as well, by the way, which are sports journalism, which is like a narrative wrapper around a box score, right? And financial journalism, which is a narrative wrapper around a stream of financial information. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Usually it leaves me pretty outraged. The market moved 100 points today on this particular news. Well, yeah, sure, maybe. So both sports and financial journalism can be fairly well written by algorithm, right? By the way, I, I think that there's something for that, you know, like algorithmic journalism, but that's actually not the overall direction I'm going. The overall direction I'm going is um, the idea of an article being a wrapper around tweets, I actually think is a form of progress because mm-hmm. those are individual facts that are linked and reproducible, right? And yeah. you, you could extend that you combine the Twitter feed with some of the concepts from crypto. Right now, one of the things we take for granted with the Twitter feed is that Twitter.com is not going and rewriting those tweets or mutating them. Like I say, Twitter.com, you, you know that if it's, if it's at Twitter.com, it hasn't been edited by Twitter.com. Sure. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. We take that for granted. But if it gets really, really high stakes, it might. Twitter certainly takes people down. They, they, or rather, they 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 suspend accounts and so on. They delete things and so on. So if it was really high stakes, you know, you can't necessarily assume Twitter.com would always be not mutating something. 
So that's where mm-hmm. cryptocurrency and blockchain comes in, where you'd have a timestamped immutable version of like a Twitter feed. And here's the new thing. We already have feeds of real estate prices, of weather, of, you know, like everything under the sun. You can, you can imagine feeds of these things, okay? And most of those are siloed right now. Like the real estate feeds are at Zillow and, you know, the movie theater feeds are at Box Office Mojo or whatever, right? Not so many movie theaters are going to be left around, but whatever, right? Um, and what you can imagine is essentially this str- all of these different feeds, thousands and eventually millions of feeds of facts, right? That all articles are wrappers around. Mm-hmm. Okay. And what that does is it's a more, you know, modest kind of journalism, right? Because there are indisputable facts that you're linking to, or at least, you know, you're showing your work, right? It's reproducible journalism in the same sense of reproducible research, open source journalism, as opposed to closed source corporate journalism. Closed source would basically be, you know, an anonymous source told me this, or the New York Times has obtained, or it's true because we say it's true, right? Open source would basically mean you've got links to all of these things. And if you dispute it, fine, but you can see the sources. All right. So uh, there's there's more. Uh, the, the last two bits, I'd say decentralized fact-checking. So there's many models for this. But one thing I'm increasingly coming to a conclusion is I think there has to be financial alignment between the writer and the audience um, such that you know, there's like mini prediction market bets. You know, you mentioned about like the take-home point, you know, Camille, right? Mm-hmm. Like maybe at the bottom of every article, you have two or three bets that the writer is provably making. Mm-hmm. Okay. And you can show that on chain that you you yourself have put a hundred bucks into this. I think coronavirus is going to be a big deal, and I'm putting a hundred bucks in on this prediction market, right? And with Ethereum and with some of the new technologies, Augur and so on, you can do prediction markets on basically anything. Okay. Hasn't yet gone vertical, but I think this might be one of the contexts. And then the reader could also, and here's a very important thing. You mentioned the reader is actually complicit in this, where, you know, uh, like with the Iraq war, everybody was uh, for it. And then they were all, they all remembered that they were against it. (laughs) You know what I mean? And, and they all blame the writers for that. And the writers do have some responsibility, but so does the reader. So does the citizen. Right. Um, And, uh, the the thing about that is uh if the reader is also on the hook to put some dollars in a dollar into coronavirus a big deal or not for example right mm-hmm. it's just a way of keeping score and a bragging rights mm-hmm. where at the end of the year you get a readout of who matched events better yeah. okay mm-hmm. and so, and I, so, there's go ahead so i, I, I got more but keep going yeah i i am all for these experiments i have been thinking about this stuff for a long time. Uh, there's so much interesting in what you said that I can't possibly address at all. Going going back to, um, God, what was that? The 2004 election, I think it was. It could have been 2008. I worked with Jay Rosen on this um, citizen journalist, attempt to wrangle citizen journalists to cover the campaign. And it was fascinating in various ways. Um, a thing I think about a lot when I think of different modes of media um, is how educated is the consumer that you are aiming this at? And it's, mm. it's possible that you could design something that is much better for someone at say the 99th or 95th or 90th percentile 
of intelligence or reading comprehension or whatever kind of way you would measure this or time that they're able to dedicate to getting the news mm-hmm. and something that would work a lot worse for people who are down around the 50%, 50th percentile. And right. I tend to wonder how much time and effort it is worth making things better for the people at the top, because I think that the smartest people who have the most time to dedicate to this stuff actually can puzzle things out from the current news ecosystem decently well and figure out what to what to pay attention to and what not I don't to. Know. I somewhat disagree with that. I think I think you're looking at our, the current kind of train crash in the US and a big part of it is due to bad information, not just for and I'm I'm not putting it all on the media yeah. and, and so on, right? But a, a big part of it is due to bad information, not over days or weeks, but or even months, but years and decades in terms of the misprioritization of resources. Mm-hmm. There's this one-liner that China has a state-controlled press, but America has a press-controlled state. Basically, the premise is China is kind of run as like, like a gigantic national corporation where um, you know the, the press there is sort of doing internal and external comms for China Inc. Okay. Mm-hmm. And you know, the, the way it works is uh they're basically meant to look, make China look good externally and then distribute information to citizens and, and, and entertainment internally, okay? Uh, but it really does fold up to Xi Jinping, who can kind of hire and fire, right? By contrast, the U.S. as a press-controlled state is in reverse. And um, you can visualize it not as Xi Jinping as a CEO, but rather 50,000 journalists who each have a beat. And one guy is writing about the Secretary of the Interior and somebody else is, you know, looking at the governor of Arizona or something like that. And that person, that journalist can get the politician fired, but not vice versa. And that's a critical point, which is if A can get B fired, but not vice versa. And I know it's not like 100%. The journalists can't snap their fingers, but they can dig through the garbage. They can go after the person, et cetera. So if A can get B fired and not vice versa, then A is in some sense B superior. But this kind of decentralized org chart, right, that's kind of how the U.S. has been running for a while, where, you know, the press, quote, holds the state accountable, right? If that is the case, well, the state hasn't been held accountable enough because it hasn't been able to be responsive to the current crisis. And so it actually truly is something where those CEOs, right, the 50,000 decentralized CEOs that are giving instructions, do this, don't do this, you know, for example, this is something which would be good for society, this would be bad for society, this would be completely unacceptable in a violation of human rights, this is, you know, the the flower of our democracy, blah, 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 right, like, you know, those kinds of things, which are both priorities as well as moral judgments, um, are how the instructions filter down. And uh, yes, it's so now that's complicated today. What I'm describing is kind of the situation circa 1995. Today, there's at least two major differences. First, next to those 50,000 decentralized CEOs have crowded in 300 million or 3 billion, if you include every social media user, right? And second, these politicians now, some of them, like, you know, Trump being the canonical one, uh, but they have started to push back and actually say, oh, no, I'm, I'm actually more like an executive myself. Um, and they started to criticize the journalists who are criticizing them, which was simply not done in the past. Like a, oh, I don't think a journalist, that's true. Well, yeah. not by name. They would not, politicians would not go after journalists by name, right? Like, like they, they might be against the press, but you, but Trump is the first to, like, in recent times, to have gone and, like, for example, you remember Bush was caught on a hot mic saying, 
oh, that guy, major league asshole or something like that. Uh, yeah, I vaguely remember that. Vaguely remember that, right? That was like a big episode where it, it was because it was so atypical, right? Like it, it, w- w- the president wasn't, you know, supposed to um, attack a journalist by name, but every day a journalist could attack the, the president or the governor or the senator or the congressman by name. It is a very new thing where the politicians have been attacking journalists by name. Let me pause there. Go. I think you could find the Wilson administration throwing like particular journalists in jail. Um, uh, yeah, maybe. So, 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 like you go back far enough, you may be right. But post, let's say Nixon, the press was prime. But so, I, I guess just just broadly, just so I wrap up quickly, and I'd love to continue this conversation sometime. Sure. One problem is just getting accurate facts and conveying them to people as a sort of middleman, right? Uh, about a bunch of subjects that one is not expert in. That's hard enough if you're doing it for an educated audience and you have all the time in the world. It's harder still if you're aiming for mm-hmm. a mass audience and you're limited in time as you are on the radio or um, by space as you are in a physical publication or by attention span as you are on the internet. And so mm-hmm. I, I just think that a lot of the flaws in the media are due not to ideology, though there are lots of ideological flaws, and not to unprofessionalism, though there's lots of that, but just to the difficulty of the task at hand. And I have yet to see another model that did it better. I am excited about the prospect of building one, mm-hmm. but I see lots of models at mass communication that perform lots worse than the best journalistic institutions conceding that we ought to move uh, journalistic institutions in directions that both you and Camille respectively and together would like to see them move in. I'm, I'm all for that. <laughs> yeah. So I was just going to say one quick thing, which is I, I do think new institutions will be built around this. Do you know the dynamo argument, like a, how electrical power came out? Basically, at, at first, factories were built around like this central mechanical dynamo, which would... Um, Gosh, I'm probably butchering this, but there was essentially a, a spinning thing in the center of a factory that that folks would rotate around and then a system of gears that would then go and move machines. Uh, and this is how kind of the factory was powered and operated. Uh, when electricity became available, at first, they just used the electricity to spin that same dynamo. And eventually, like 10 or 20 or whatever years in, uh, they realized, oh, wait a second. We don't have to put the factory around this dynamo. We can just lay out all the machines in rational fashion and set up assembly lines in a different way, right? The point is, over the last 20 years, what we've basically done is taken newspapers and put them online. And yes, there's stuff like linking and and you know there's there's uh, there's snippets and there's social media and so on and so forth. But there's still like a mapping, right? The the, the things you can only do digitally. Mm-hmm. There's actually hasn't been that much of that. There's data journalism, right? There's some of the graphics and stuff that NYT does, but there isn't stuff that is truly, truly digital only, right? And like cryptographic fact checking or like open source, you know, journalism starts to get you into a domain that is like that second round of iteration, if that makes any sense. You know, it's like digital native as opposed to taking a newspaper and uploading mm-hmm. it. And I think that's going to end up being like an open source media community where I mean, you know, people have observed the profit is going out of journalism. And that's why there's all these folks with trust funds and so on who work in journalism because there's any money to be made and if you need some external support. I wish I had a trust fund. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm not saying you. 
<laughs> I'm not saying you, but I am saying that there, there are, I mean, this is definitely a thing, right? You have a lot of folks who, uh, who have inherited the, the paper itself in the case of the NYT, uh, who had a, you know, father given them a job. And so that's, that's a big thing over there. Right. Um, and an alternative is maybe a full-time job is a new trust fund. Maybe journalism isn't your job, but your job is a chemist or your, uh, you know, a, um, automation engineer or you're a pilot or something like that. You have some domain knowledge in some sphere. Frankly, you know, a nurse or something, you know, like like lots of things would actually be relevant, frankly. And uh, and so you have a full-time job, but then you add a supplement of $1,000 a year by basically writing online a few times per year. That's a model where you have direct, you know, on-the-ground information and journalism is no longer a profit center it's a combination of a duty, you know, to the, like the public. And it's, uh, it's also something which is massively more decentralized where citizens are actually taking responsibility for other citizens finding out the truth. Now, I'm not saying that there won't still be folks like yourself, Connor, like uh, you, you might make a million dollars a year in this kind of environment. If, if the Substack kind of thing works right where you have a large following and whatnot, but it's a continuous thing as opposed to a separate priesthood class of, you know, oh, these folks determine what is the truth at these media corporations and other, everybody else has to listen to. Yeah, I, I'm skeptical of the idea of domain-specific people writing a few times a year, being able to write things that many people would want to read. There are some who are very talented, who are great writers, but my experience of interviewing mm-hmm. domain-specific people um, is that I have to talk to them for an hour to get them to explain it to me, relatively sharp person <laughs> who really wants to listen in a way that is coherent. Yeah. And uh, yeah, the idea that they're going to just be able to do it themselves. Like I, if you pursue this, I encourage you to try this, to just go talk to someone in some domain who is an expert and try to just get them to explain like a relatively simple thing to you. And you'd be surprised by how hard it is to pull things out of people who do relative, like not even very complicated things, you know, and it varies widely. Like I just talked to a bunch of people who run food banks about their COVID related challenges. Yeah. And man, a couple of them, I could just take the tape and put it right on the internet and people would be like, Oh, this is a compelling voice. That's a, that's a really good criticism. Actually. That's a, that's a good point, Connor. So one thing I will say is the response of, okay, how, how do we do it better? I like that response. Yeah. That's that's actually, you know, we can meet there because that's something which is a productive um, kind of area where, uh, you know, what, what tech often does is it will rebuild something. And in the process, it will end up rebuilding parts of what it just, you know, abandoned or whatever. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, for example, Uber called taxis, but rebuilt a regulatory system within the taxis in terms of star ratings. Yeah. Right. Like people wanted quality filtering and so on. Right. And and so some of the things you mentioned are important features that somebody who is in the process of professional journalism sees. The narrative layer that you add on top is actually a big value add, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And 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 I, I would agree with that. That makes it comprehensible. Not everybody's a good communicator. And so identifying and picking out those features, then we figure out how we can do a, a V2. Uh, and it doesn't mean everybody goes out of work. It means that we we actually might be able to expand the pie um, because information is financially actionable. Well, 
This has been a fascinating conversation. I had thoughts about how this conversation might go. And somewhere near the end of my list of things was journalism. And I thought maybe we'll spend a couple of minutes talking about that. I always bite off way more than I can chew. Sure. But I wanted to talk about some of the, the lockdowns that are coming to an end, but I think we're going to have to table that for another time. Um, unfortunately, uh, I think this will continue for a while. So we'll have plenty of opportunity to talk about it. One thing I did want to toss at you quickly going out the door, maybe it's a bit of a French vibe, but you'll have an opportunity to respond. Okay. Um, you mentioned New Zealand. And I, I think the last tweet that I saw pinned at the top of your um, profile was about, you know, the various places that have defeated COVID um, or at least have, you know, come out on the other side of this. You mentioned New Zealand and I am probably one of those people who would respond, well, yeah, New Zealand is really small. It's an island. So they could respond forcefully, you know, in terms of the, the triage. Like if there are two kinds of preparedness, there's the serious early preparedness, the stuff that George W. Bush was talking about in 2005 when he said, if we wait for the pandemic to appear, it will be too late to prepare. Like we didn't do it. We didn't prepare. Almost no one did. But in a circumstance where you're sort of being prepared in this second category where it's just triage, like a New Zealand is going to excel in a circumstance like that. They've got fewer people to worry about. There's less terrain. They don't have these major city centers. Isn't it fair to say that contrasting the response of the United States versus New Zealand, given the wildly different circumstances, it has always struck me as a, a not entirely instructive comparison if I'm trying to figure out the right thing to do. There are bigger countries that have gotten it under control, like China. There's smaller countries like New Zealand. There's um, you know, other Western democracies like Austria and Australia. Uh, and uh, there's Eastern European countries like Slovakia. There's poor countries like Vietnam. There's you know, basically there's, it's like big and fat, short and tall. Like it's, it's kind of all out there. Right. And, and the U S used to be mm -hmm. the country that everybody else was supposed to look for as the model, right? Oh, the U S was number one. It was, uh, you know, 1933, you know, Hoover dam and 1945, you know, like Manhattan project in 1968 is, uh, or 67, 68 is, uh, Apollo. And, um, and, and that age is gone, right? But it's very obvious now that it's gone. Like that was, I'm not saying it was necessarily perfect or what have you, but that was a time when the US government had technical talent and, and it doesn't anymore. Mm. Um, and uh, so, the, you know, like the, the 1968 American assumed, didn't assume that they were number one. They put in a lot of hard work to be number one. And now what I see is like the can't do society where there's a lot of, and I'm not saying, I'm not, I'm not attacking you on this at all. Camille. That's, a, just, that's okay. Yeah. Uh, uh, okay. But I'm just saying that there's a, there's a lot of apologetics of why America can't do this and can't do that. We can't do this. It's authoritarian. We can't do this. It's an Island. We can't do this. It's just different, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Like a lot of other people are managing it and the U S isn't. And these are all just Loser apologies, basically. Um, and, you know, the, I'm not attacking no, 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 you. Not, loser you. Not, not, no, 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 not you. I, I really am not. I I'm, I'm saying, I'm saying, I'm saying that, like, like, I see a lot of folks seeing this kind of thing on Twitter. Yeah, yeah. And here's the thing they haven't gotten is yeah. if you're making a bunch of reasons that the USA is bringing up the rear and the USA is, 
you know, basically a loser. The rest of the world sees that too. Mm -hmm. And this is an international event, by the way, that has much more in the way of geopolitical ramifications, I think, than Americans have taken on board. This is this is something where mm -hmm. USA, like normally there's like a flood or or you know, some issue, some country in the US sends Marines and you know, like bags of food and, and what have you. This is completely absent on the world stage on this. It's basically gotten invaded and and frankly defeated mm -hmm. by a virus um, and is negotiating the terms of surrender right now. That's like a huge deal, right? Like NATO was just imagine line. You know, it was like basically the viral blitzkrieg just went around it. And other countries are fighting that thing off. And I think that what's going to happen is the green zones are going to be doing better in the medium to long run economically and health-wise. Um, and people are going to regret like letting the place go red um, because when the virus is endemic, it just inhibits commerce in many ways. It's not like an either or. Framing that as a binary, I think, is one of the worst things about our politics. It's like you do, you do better on both if you control it. Right. It also so, seems like the long-term prestige of the United States, um, whether or not we are the ones who come up with the vaccine, if there is a vaccine, right. seems to me like it could make such a huge difference on perceptions after that point. I think that's right. I think that's right. Like basically, um, here's the thing also, uh, even prior to a vaccine, people don't really fully understand this, but um, the, the WeChat red code, yellow code, green code system, right? Essentially, everybody in China pretty much has WeChat, and everybody who has WeChat now has a code as to what their current health status is. And um, if you're green, got a green code, you can travel. If you've got a yellow code, you're under basically house arrest, um, and because you, you've been exposed to the virus. And if you've got a red code, then you're off to central quarantine um, so that you don't spread the virus in the community. You're, you've tested positive, and they'll keep you there for a while. And uh, essentially you've got this gigantic dashboard of the entire country and the social graph and the, and, and the proximity graph, like who's near who, not necessarily who's friends with who, right? And all these nodes are wiggling around and they're lighted up green, yellow, and red. And now China is woke to the virus, right? They've got one of the few things that can move faster than the virus, which is the internet. And so they have this viral fire alarm that they've built and installed across the entire country in two months. Um, and uh, so basically every time that there's an outbreak of some kind, they can see it lighting up there and then they just quash it with quarantine, you know, maybe very aggressive quarantine, but they're constantly monitoring it. Right mm. now that system is uh, they're They're doing the next level of it now where in Wuhan, they're talking about like, and, and there've been varying reports in this. Some people have said it's only 150,000 tests. Some have said like, it's actually millions taking the city of 11 million and they're testing everybody which is like taking the entire social graph and you've got some, you know, green and yellow and red codes, but now you light up the entire social graph. It's like a gigantic industrial project to drop a ton of flares, light up the social graph, determine where the greens are, where the yellows and the reds are. And any disease reservoirs, that is people who are yellow, right? Who, who had the disease, but you didn't detect them. You just go, boom, you isolate and you contain all of them. And this is a way in which like truly industrial scale testing can actually eradicate the virus because you just light up every single node, you find out everybody's status and you quarantine all the people who have it and then they can't pass it on, right? And then you just go city by city like this. It's like a clear and hold strategy for counterinsurgency kind of thing, right? Um, if you can do this. And if China can do that in their home country, then the Belt and Road becomes a defense pact where 
every country that wants to put out a viral fire, China has the export of being able to turn your country to a green zone. So they land there and they have all your citizens install WeChat and then boom, they just do the exact same thing, right? That's going to happen. It's happening in Iran, right? Mm. That's, you know, Iran's a big China ally now because of this. Serbia had been talking about allying. Like China's going to pick up a bunch of pieces on the board from this because, uh, you know, it's like a Marshall Plan like thing. It's like, okay, rebuild your society, get the virus out. Now, currently, the U.S. discourse mm-hmm. is stuck in the mold of some people saying, okay, let me stay at home until, you know, forever, until a vaccine or just stay at home with no plan, infinite lockdown. And other folks, unfortunately, are out there right. saying, I'll, I'll do it with no masks, you know, dude, it's just the flu or, or a slightly more sophisticated variant. Only old people are at risk. I'm not at risk. You know, I'm young and healthy. Right. right. And, uh, and actually, you know, like the Asian perspective on this is, this is kind of lunacy. These people are not taking the thing seriously. And it's actually a very serious virus. And it, it has, has a chance of being like, uh, like something where it's just hard to get a vaccine for, or where you need lots of booster shots because immunity isn't long lived. And, and so letting it go out of control is like this crazy kind of thing. But unfortunately, it feels like that's where the U.S. is defaulting to. So, so that's my long answer, Camille, of, of why I bring up these other countries. I have so many things that I want to talk about. <laughs> yeah. At a minimum, however good the response is in China, and I think that remains to be seen. Like the actual effectiveness of all of this, the quality of the tests, there were circumstances I know early on. Yeah, they sent bad tests to Europe. We're seeing yeah. exceptionally high rates of failure with respect to their tests. And quite frankly, like their system of government and the totally. the extraordinary degree of fraudulence in their entire economy and political system, from my perspective, it all but guarantees that they will fail in important respects that make something like this very so hard here, to pull off. Here's the thing. So um, I'll say one thing, which is... I'll let you do that. And I'll, I'll actually give you the last word on this so we don't have to, okay. to push you too long. But because I don't... I love I love that the podcast isn't about no, no, like, no. winning an argument or even having a debate as much as airing, airing these perspectives and allowing folks to, to sort of sit and think about them. So I don't have any problem. All right. Okay. So, here, I, so I don't even think of this as a useful discussion. Here's something that I think is important, at least from my perspective on China. Like two things are true at the same time. On the one hand, China will mm. uh, is will steal IP. It will. Uh, there's there's the Chinese government itself has admitted that various government entities there have committed fraud and other kinds of things, right? Um, so that's true that there are actors within China. It's a 1.4 billion person country, as well as the state itself does a bunch of this stuff. Mm-hmm. On the other hand. It also ships world-class goods like, you know, the phone in your hand and much of the stuff in your house. It's like there's like real things that shipped. And over the last 40 years, it built the entire physical plant of China. It became the factory of the world and it accumulated massive savings. You know, if it had gone into debt, for example, and done the other two, you, you could argue, okay, it's actually negative. But it's it somehow managed to win on all three, right? Like ship a bunch of goods, build a bunch of stuff at China itself, and save a ton of money, right? So, so the the thing that's hard for I think Americans to get is either they go into Tom Friedman mode, and China's. Yeah, I'm not trying to beat up Tom Friedman. I'm just saying, you know, it's okay. We we allow that here. Okay, fine. <laughs> right. So so I, it's amazing it can do no wrong, etc. Or they flip to everything is fake, can't be trusted, it's all BS, etc. Mm-hmm, the the hard thing is like both can be true at once, you know, and and I think that's 
similar to like the lockdown kind of, you know, erase the binary or whatever, you know, so. All good things don't go together. I don't know how successful China will be either in the long run. It could be that they're more successful than anyone at fighting this virus and certain attributes of their society make them more successful and that mm. uh, certain attributes of our society make us more successful at lots of other things. And I personally would not want to make that trade off. There are certain things that China does that I just think are unacceptable, whether they are or not. <laughs> so, you know, live free or face a slightly <laughs> higher risk of dying. Yeah, that's the thing is, I think, I think, I think we're gonna, I think we're gonna find that the virus actually is, uh, it's like a power outage. That is to say, essentially. Western society is explicitly premised on the presence of ubiquitous electrical power. Mm. You know, you plug in the outlet and, and it works, right? It is implicitly premised on the absence of serious infectious disease from public fora. Sure. So, so what we have now is like, like a national power outage except for health. The health has gone out in the U.S. And so every, uh, you know, you wouldn't tell a restaurant to just plow through if the, if the power had gone out. If the health gone out, uh, it, it actually is a giant tax on all economic transactions. I think, I think we're going to find that it's actually a very serious thing. Oh, yeah. Longer conversation. We, we, we know of new methods of attack. The Trojan horse.